Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast. Last time, we spoke about the Scandinavians in Ireland, and especially their settlement in Dublin. One of the most famous, or infamous, depending on who you're talking to, of the kings of Dublin was Ivar, the founder of the Uimer dynasty. According to legend, he was supposed to have been none other than Ivar the Boneless, one of the sons of Ragnar Lothbrok, that most famous of all famous Vikings. Today, we'll take a closer look at the legend of Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons, not only Ivar. We're doing this not necessarily because the sagas that recount the life of Ragnar are particularly trustworthy, or because they reflect the historical truth. We do it because Ragnar Lothbrok was an important person in early medieval Scandinavia. Famous and powerful people, even the kings of Norway, would claim to be his descendants in order to bolster their own images and street cred. And in such circumstances, we shouldn't let such pesky details like what actually happened stand in the way of a good story. So without any further ado, let's get to it. Episode 5, Fuzzy Pants and Sons Charlemagne, who at the time ruled over Francia, heard of the raid against Lindisfarne soon after it occurred, and at his court, people reacted with the same disbelief as everywhere else in Christian Europe. Who would attack a place of God, they said to each other. But the following year, when additional Viking raiders appeared along the North Sea shores, the French realized that this was now a thing, and they needed to act. The Frankish Empire itself was first attacked by Viking raiders in the year 799, that is, several years after the first attacks in England. In response to these attacks, Charlemagne set up a defense system along the northern coast of his empire in the year 810. He also organized a Frankish fleet and coastal army, and it seems to have had the desired effect, because it would take a few years before the Vikings would start raiding in Francia in earnest. After Charlemagne's death in 814, his son Louis the Pious succeeded him. During his reign, the empire was torn by eternal strife that weakened it and eroded the Vikings' respect for the Frankish coastal defenses. The Vikings tried to force their way through these defenses in a raid at the mouth of the river Seine in 820 but the defences held, that time. In 834, the Franks weren't as lucky when Danish Vikings raided the Channel coast. Still, these raids were nothing compared to the recurring attacks that plagued the last years of Louis' reign. And when he died in June 840, things just got worse. His sons started to fight over the inheritance, and back in Scandinavia, the people who could organise Viking raids also knew about the political situation in Francia they were quick to take advantage of it. All through the 840s, the Frankish coasts and rivers were regularly raided by Vikings. Just like on the British Isles, the Vikings sought to capture the treasure stored at monasteries. And just like their Anglo-Saxon counterparts, the Frankish monasteries offered plentiful booty and a weak defense, just like the Vikings liked it. But just like in the British Isles, the purpose of these attacks probably wasn't to humiliate the Christian god per se, whatever the clerics and chroniclers might have believed. One of the best-known raids up the Seine against Paris itself occurred in the year 845. This raid was led by a Viking chieftain named Ragnar, by posterity often identified as the legendary Ragnar Lothbrok. I wouldn't wager too much money on the identity of this chieftain, but he must have had a name, so why not Ragnar? But that doesn't mean that he was THE Ragnar Lothbrok, or Indeed, that the Ragnar Lothbrok ever existed at all, 
at least not in the way we think of him today. But even if Ragnar Lothbrok's identity and life story most likely are made up, or at least a highly fictionalized version of something that might possibly have happened, the legend of Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons has been important in Scandinavian history, because for hundreds of years this legend was accepted as truth, and it influenced the way Scandinavians saw and understood themselves, not least in the Middle Ages and in the 19th century. According to some, the raid led by Ragnar Lothbrok was a response to Frankish aggression against Denmark under Charlemagne and his sons. For decades, the Franks had strived to undermine and destabilize the Danish political structure in order to secure their own northern border. Both Charlemagne and his son Louis the Pious had done this. From this perspective, the Franks weren't peaceful, innocent Christians who were minding their own peaceful and innocent business until they, completely out of the blue, were attacked by brutal and greedy pagans from the north who were after plunder and humiliating the Christian god. No, they'd been poking the Scandinavian bear for decades. Now it was payback time. Proponents of this theory like to point out that the another large Danish force sacked Hamburg that same year that Ragnar Lothbrok sailed up the Seine. Needless to say, contemporary Frankish sources are not among the proponents of this theory. Be that as it may, the timing of the attack was well chosen. The Frankish kingdoms had exhausted themselves with a costly civil war that broke out when Louis the Pious died in 840, and his sons fought over who would inherit what. The war had recently ended in 843, but it ended with the division of the empire into three separate and weaker kingdoms. The western kingdom, where Paris was situated, was ruled by Charles the Bald, the various factions who fought in the Frankish Civil War had actually employed Viking mercenaries, so the Scandinavians had gained a lot of valuable inside knowledge about Frankish tactics, weaknesses, and, not least important, suitable targets for future raids. It's hard to estimate how many men participated in that raid in the spring of 845, but possibly somewhere between four and 7,000 Viking soldiers, depending on the size of the ships and how tightly they were packed into them. But even the lower number is still a massive force, much larger than a regular little raiding party. This was an invasion force. Ragnar and his men had no trouble entering the River Seine. Decades of neglect had left the fortifications constructed under Charlemagne at the mouth of the river basically useless. On their way up the river, the Scandinavians stopped to raid Rouen, the first major city when you go up the Seine. This stopover wasn't particularly pleasant for the population of Rouen, obviously, but it gave Charles the Bold the time he needed to gather his forces and organize the defense of his kingdom. He decided to concentrate his defense on the Abbey of Saint-Denis, just north of Paris. It wasn't merely a rich monastic institution of the kind that the Vikings loved to raid and plunder, but it had also been a royal possession for generations. It was a symbol of the king's power and dignity. He did not want to lose it. Charles assembled an army which he divided into two parts, one for each side of the river. Ragnar attacked and defeated the smaller part of this Frankish army left on one of the river banks. The Scandinavian victory was complete and the rest of the Frankish army could just watch helplessly as their comrades were slaughtered by the Vikings. Ragnar then took 111 of the surviving Franks and hanged them on an island in the Seine. This struck terror in the remaining Frankish forces and they retreated. King Charles the Bold 
hid out in the monastery of Saint-Denis and prayed for the deliverance of himself and his kingdom from the Vikings. The Vikings themselves passed by the monastery and instead continued on to Paris, ignoring the king and his soldiers holed up in Saint-Denis. On Easter Sunday, the 29th of March, the Vikings broke through the defenses of the city, entered it and plundered it. During the attack on Paris, some kind of infectious disease broke out in the Scandinavian camp. According to the pious Frankish chronicler who penned the Translatio Sancti Germani, this was Saint Germain who had heard the king's prayer and spread the disease among the invaders. The chronicler would like to have us believe that the Vikings first prayed to their own gods, but nothing happened. Then one of their Christian prisoners advised them to fast and pray to the Christian god instead. Instantly, the disease that had plagued them subsided. Apparently, after this, the Vikings were so in awe by the power of the Christian god, through his saintly middleman, that they capitulated. Charles the Bald then magnanimously let them go back home to Denmark. A more likely reason for the Vikings packing up and leaving was that since the Franks could not assemble any effective defense against the invaders, they paid the Vikings off. The Vikings withdrew only after being paid a ransom of 7,000 pounds of silver, or approximately 2,570 kilograms. To the chagrin of many, King Charles also let them keep all the plunder that they had collected. While agreeing to withdraw from Paris, Ragnar still pillaged several sites along the coast on the return voyage home. Although Charles had been criticized severely for granting the large ransom payment to the Vikings, it might have been the best of his very limited options. And in the short term, the king's policy seemed to make sense. Ragnar agreed, lifted the siege of Paris and moved on. Further bloodshed, as well as a very real threat of military defeat, was avoided. But that only solved the king's problems temporarily. When the rumors started to spread about the low-hanging Frankish fruit, more Vikings decided to try their luck. Vikings returned again and again in the coming years and secured both, both loot and ransom from the Franks. Although many Vikings had died in the plague during the siege of Paris, Ragnar lived to return home. According to the author of Translatio Sancti Germani, Ragnar went to see King Horik of Denmark, bragging about his success in Francia. Ragnar showed the gold and silver he had acquired to the Danish king, and boasted about how easy he thought the conquest of Paris had been, noting that the only resistance he had encountered was from the long-deceased Saint-Germain. Then, all of a sudden, Ragnar collapsed in pain. He suffered horribly for three days until his entrails just burst, which, not entirely surprisingly, led to his death. So that was it then. Ragnar Lothbrok was dead and gone. End of story. Or at least so the Frankish chronicler would have us believe. But those of us who've read the Scandinavian sources or watched History Channel's hit show Vikings would be very surprised if the story of Ragnar Lothbrok ended here. Our main Scandinavian sources to the life and deeds of Ragnar Lothbrok are two. Saxa Grammaticus's Gesta Donorum, The Deeds of the Danes, that we'll have reason to return to in a future episode, and the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok, which you would be forgiven for believing is about Ragnar Lothbrok, but it's actually much more focused on his sons. These sources have a lot to say about Ragnar Lothbrok. They're a virtual treasure trove of anecdotes and stories about his and his sons' exploits. The only problem 
is that they were both written long after Ragnar and his sons had been dead for generations. So, much like the Translatio Sancti Germani, they're not very reliable. The Ragnar Lothbrok that emerges from these texts is most likely a combination of several Viking chieftains, spiced up with a healthy dose of folktale elements to make it more compelling. It's not even certain that the Ragnar that raided Paris in 845 is a part of that composite. The connection between the two could easily just uh, be a later convention. In fact, that's even quite likely. With that caveat out of the way, let's look at these sources and what they have to tell us. When we start to dig into the legend of Ragnar Lothbrok, we should probably start with his name. Where does the name Lothbrok come from? It's not his last name, for starters. At that time, I mean the Viking Age, the Scandinavians didn't have last names. They were known as so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. For instance, Ragnar Lothbrok was Ragnar Sigurdsson, that is, the son of Sigurd, and his sons, in turn, were then called the Ragnarsons. This, by the way, is a convention that still survives in Iceland today. The vast majority of Icelanders, to this very day, don't have last names, in the way we think of it, anyway but only these patronyms. This means that a modern-day Icelander called Ragnar, whose father's name was Sigurd, is also called Ragnar Sigurdsson, and his sister is called Sigurdsdóttir, daughter of Sigurd, since she's not a son, obviously. Ragnar's son, let's call him Erik, is then called Erik Ragnarsson. That way, an Icelandic family of four, mother, father, and their son and daughter, going abroad will hand over their passports with four different last names to passport control or hotel lobby at check-in. I can only imagine that this must cause a bit of fuss, or at least the occasional raised eyebrow from various border guards and hotel clerks. Anyway, back to Ragnar Sigurdsson. Where did he get the nickname Lothbrok? We don't really know where he came from, beyond the fact that it seems to have been southern Scandinavia somewhere. He was probably a man of some wealth and connections, but we don't really know that either. Another thing we don't really know is the names of his wives. According to Gesta Donorum, his first wife's name was Lagartha, and that might ring a bell if you ever watched the TV show. But in the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok, his first wife is called Thora, Thora Fortress Heart. And her story is intrinsically connected to the name Lothbrok. Thora was the daughter of a Jarl, often translated as Earl in English. And her father, the Jarl, gave young Thora a cute, adorable little pet snake. One day, the cute little snake crawled onto a nugget of gold that the family apparently had lying about somewhere. And a curious thing happened. The nugget grew. Obviously, everyone thought that this was marvelous, and they were so focused on the growing gold that they failed to notice that the little snake also grew. And grew. And grew. Soon, it had grown to be a giant, fearsome dragon that held everyone hostage at the Jarl's farm, and it devoured a whole ox per day. Thora's father, the Jarl, let it be known that anyone who would slay the dragon could marry his daughter, and so this guy named Ragnar decided to give it a shot. According to the saga, he was tall, handsome and strong, but still, killing dragons is a risky business, so he decided to dip his pants in tar and then roll around in sand to make them impenetrable to the dragon's poison. And this, boys and girls, is where the name Lothbrok comes from. It basically means shaggy breeches or fuzzy pants. The Jarl kept his word, Ragnar married Thora, and by all accounts they had a happy, 
albeit brief, marriage. They had two sons, Eric and Agner, before Thora fell ill and died. Ragnar was devastated by her death, and he processed her, his grief by going raiding. On this grief raid, he went plundering in Norway, and there he met his second wife, Oslog. She was the orphan daughter of none other than Sigurd Fafnersbani, the famous dragon slayer, and Brynhilde, the Valkyrie. Unfortunately for Oslog, her parents were killed by their enemies, but she was whisked away to safety by a guy named Hamer, hidden in a giant hollow harp. One evening, Hamer and the harp arrived at a farm somewhere in Norway, and the mistress of the house, an ugly old woman called Grima, noticed a piece of rich, beautiful fabric sticking out of the harp. She got greedy and convinced her husband, Ari, to clubber Hamer to death so that they could steal the harp and its riches. Since Ari was an obedient husband, he killed their guest and proceeded to pry open the harp. Imagine their surprise when Grima and Ari found not only riches, but also a beautiful girl inside the harp. They decided to try to pass her off as their own daughter. But in order to do so, they had to hide her beauty by making her dirty. Otherwise, no one would ever believe that she was Grima's child. They also called her Kraka, or Crow. This worked for a while, and Oslog, now known as Kraka, lived with her foster parents until Ragnar's raiding party showed up. Ragnar sent a few of his men ashore to bake bread, since that's not really something you'd want to do on a wooden boat. They started baking, but after a while, they caught a glimpse of Oslog, who had washed, thus revealing her true beauty. They were so transfixed by the beauty of this young woman that they burnt the bread, and when they returned to the ships, Ragnar was not happy. Not happy at all. At least not in the beginning. When the would-be bakers told him about this beautiful girl that made them forget about the bread, Ragnar became curious, and he summoned her. But to test her intelligence, he instructed her to approach not naked, but also not clothed, not hungry, but also not having eaten, and not in company, but also not alone. When Oslog did show up, wrapped in a fishnet, chewing on a leek and with a dog in tow, Ragnar knew that he had met the right girl for him. He asked her to step aboard his ship and sail away with him. But Oslog wasn't convinced. She demanded guarantees for her safety, but instead, Ragnar tried to convince her to just come along already. Apparently, he got a little too physical doing this because Oslog's dog bit him. This, in turn, led Ragnar's men to strangle the dog to death with a bowstring. Ragnar probably realized that things weren't going so well for him, so he offered Oslog one of his dead wife's beautiful garments that he had carrying around with him. But Oslog refused even this tempting offer to dress her in her dog slayer's dead first wife's hand-me-downs. Instead, she suggested a, a compromise. If, next time, Ragnar passed through, he still wanted her, then she would go along with him. Ragnar agreed, and the next time he passed by, he stopped to pick up Oslog, who went with him willingly this time. They soon got married, but on their wedding night, Oslog said that unless Ragnar waited to consummate the marriage for three more days, the son that would be the product of their union would be deformed. But Ragnar couldn't keep it in his fuzzy pants any longer and ignore Oslog's three-day ban. Sure enough, when their firstborn son was born, it turned out that he was a cripple. He was called Ivar the Boneless, in reference to his handicap. Exactly what that meant is a topic of some scholarly debate. Some argue that he suffered from some kind of bone disease, 
whereas others claim that it's a mistranslation from Latin. At some point, someone confused the word exosus, meaning horrible, for exos, boneless, and that's how the whole mess started. Personally, I've always just assumed it meant that he couldn't use his legs, and it was only as an adult when I started to take an interest in academic discussions on Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons that I realized that not everybody took for granted that boneless means legless. I realize that my only real argument to back this up is the fact that in Scandinavian languages you use the same word for bone and leg, so it makes sense to understand his name to mean Ivar the legless rather than Ivar the boneless. I would also argue that the rest of the saga would indicate a person who can't use his legs, but on the other hand, he is a pretty horrible person too, so I kind of see where they get the idea from. Anyway, Ragnar and Oslo's second son was called Björn, and he grew up to receive the nickname Ironside, thanks to his prowess in battle. Later, they have three more sons, Vitserk, Ragnvald, and Sigurd. But if you don't limit yourself to the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok and look at all the texts covering Ragnar and his life, you get a longer list of sons. All in all, eleven, in fact. Beyond Eric, Windhat, and Agnar that he had together with Thora, Gista Denorum also mentions Fridlif, Dunwat, Ragward, and Ubba. Despite his handicap, whatever it might have been, Ivar the Boneless became the leader of the Gang of Brothers, and they carried him around wherever they went even in battle. Needless to say, we'll get back to that in just a little bit. When Oslo's sons grew up, they wanted to win fame, fortune and loot, just like their two older half-brothers, Eric and Agnar, so they set out to sack the town of Viteber in Norway, a place their father Ragnar himself had tried and failed to conquer. The townspeople released their two magic bulls at the attacking Ragnarsons, but Ivar, carried by his brothers on a shield, shot them both dead and the town was soon captured and thoroughly plundered. The saga then tells us that Ragnar had a friend, Øystein, who happened to be the king of Sweden. Øystein also had a magic battle cow, by the way, but more importantly, he had a daughter that he offered to marry off to Ragnar. Everyone thought that this was a splendid match, and definitely a step up from that peasant girl Kroka that he was currently married to. They managed to convince Ragnar that they were right, and he agreed to marry Øystein's daughter. But at the same time, he had a hunch that his current wife wouldn't be all too pleased about this, so he forbade everyone from telling her about it. Unfortunately for Ragnar, his wife understood the language of the birds, a skill she'd inherited from her father, Sigurd Fafnirspani, who learned to understand bird language when he ate the heart of the dragon Fafnir that he had just killed. That came in rather handy for him, but that's a topic for another day. Oslog heard the birds gossiping about how her husband is now engaged to some Swedish princess and decided that something needed to be done about it. So Oslo decided to finally reveal her true parentage to Ragnar. She is not, in fact, the daughter of a poor peasant, but rather the heir of the legendary Signor Fafnirsparni and a real genuine Valkyrie. Her pedigree is much better than some dime a dozen provincial princess. But she didn't convince Ragnar straight away. Justifiably, he questioned why she had kept this a secret from him until now. I mean, they've been married long enough to have grown children, big enough to kill magic cattle and plunder towns. It's a little too convenient that she reveals this only now when he's found a new, better connected bride. But Oslog insists. She says that she'll prove her lineage to him. 
she's pregnant with another son, and when he's born, he'll be born with a snake in his eye. This will prove that her father was the legendary dragon slayer Sigurd Fafnirspani. At this point, Ragnar could have said that such an eye defect wouldn't prove a thing, and that besides that, he'd also slayed a dragon, thank you very much, so maybe the snake in the boy's eye is a reference to his achievements and not to his dead father-in-law's. But he doesn't do that. Instead, when Oslog does indeed give birth to a son with a snake in the eye, Ragnar is convinced that she was telling the truth all along and breaks up with the Swedish princess. The kid, by the way, is creatively enough named Sigurd Urmiöga, or Snake in the Eye. But that's not the end of the story. Back in Sweden, Öysting couldn't care less who Ragnar's wife's parents were. He's enraged when he learns of the breakup and threatens to avenge his daughter's trampled honor. Ragnar's two oldest sons from his first marriage decide to deal him a preemptive strike and attack Öysten in Sweden. Unfortunately for the Ragnarsons, Öysten and his magic cow win the day. Agnar is killed in battle and Erik is captured. King Öysten offers to release him if he agrees to marry his daughter, the princess, instead of Ragnar. This would somehow restore the honor of the family, but Erik refuses and asks to be killed instead. That, one imagines, can't have been good for the poor princess's self-esteem. When word of the death of Agnar and Eric reaches Ragnar's home, he's outrating, but Oslog and her sons are outraged by the news. Sigurd, now three years old, and his mother call for revenge, but Ivar, Witserk and Björn hesitate. But Sigurd taunts them until they agree to avenge their killed half-brothers. Oslog and her four sons set out to Sweden to raid and plunder, and Östing soon counterattacks. They join battle at a place called the Field of Ulr. Ulr was probably a very important god for the Scandinavians during the Viking Age, at least judging by the number of place names, especially in southwestern Sweden, named after him. But interestingly enough, we know nothing about this god, since there are no surviving myths or legends that include him. More of this in a future episode on pre-Christian Scandinavian religion, I promise. Anyway, Östing uses his best troops and his magic cow, but Ivar the Boneless has a plan. As usual, his brothers carry him on a shield. They approach the cow, and first Ivar blinds the beast with an arrow shot in each eye. After that, he has his brothers toss him at the blinded cow, and when he lands on the animal, he crushes it under his body weight. The Ragnarsons win the battle and kill King Öystein. After that's been settled, Oslog goes home, but her sons set out to raid and plunder on the continent, building their own reputations as fierce and fearless Vikings. Meanwhile, Ragnar comes home after a season of raiding and pillaging and hears of his son's exploits in Sweden. You'd think that he'd be glad and proud of his sons and their achievements, but you'd be wrong. He's overcome with jealousy instead, and he decides to prove to no one in particular that he's still the top dog in the family. He decides to set out to raid in England with only two ships. Oslog, who is apparently not overly impressed by Ragnar's parenting skills, or his level of maturity, advises that he should really bring more ships if he wants to attack England. But Ragnar refuses to listen to her advice. He is out to prove a point. Before he sets off, Oslo gives him a magic shirt that will protect him from harm. Because apparently cheating by using magic armor is fine when you're out to prove you're stronger and braver than your sons, but bringing more men isn't. Go figure. 
Ragnar reaches the coast of Northumbria, and when King Ella hears that Ragnar is raiding in his kingdom, he gives his men an explicit order not to kill Ragnar, because King Ella is afraid of the Ragnarsons. That, that one's gotta hurt for Ragnar's ego, at least a little bit. Ella and his forces meet Ragnar and his two ships worth of Vikings in a battle, and the intruders are defeated. But thanks to his magic shirt, Ragnar survives and is captured. Proud as ever, he refuses to tell the Northumbrian soldiers anything, not even his name. That's unfortunate, because King Ella then throws him into a snake pit, without knowing that he's about to kill the very man he doesn't want to kill. The venomous snakes bite at Ragnar to no effect until the Northumbrians remove his protective shirt. Then the snakes kill him. But before he dies, Ragnar supposedly says, Oh, the piglets would grunt loudly if they knew the boar's plight. And from this, King Ella suddenly realizes his blunder that he had killed Ragnar Lothbrok, but now it's too late. But not too late, apparently, for Ragnar Lothbrok to say something else. In fact, before he dies, in that snake pit, he recites a whole poem called Crocomol. This poem is, in effect, supposed to be his last words. It might seem like quite an achievement to think of a rather long poem as you lie dying constantly being bitten by venomous snakes, but that's nothing compared to the fact that Ragnar must have lied in that pit for quite some time, if he's indeed the author of this poem, because it's clearly composed at the earliest in the 12th century, or at least 300 years after Ragnar was thrown into the pit. Another, perhaps more likely explanation, is that the poem was composed in Ragnar's name by a later Scandinavian poet who wanted to cement and enhance the reputation of this mythical Viking trickster and dragon slayer for some reason or another. Krokomol means the Kroka poem, and uh, it's a reference to Ragnar's wife Oslog, who for the first dozen or so years of their marriage used the alias Kroka. It belongs to a genre of ancient Scandinavian poetry called life poems, where dying men summarize their lives, usually in a rather self-aggrandizing manner. This particular example celebrates the life of a Viking pillaging, killing, and conquering. There are a lot of references to the beast of battle, the wolf, the raven, and the eagle that Ragnar kept well supplied with fresh meat after killing scores of people in many countries. It does get a little repetitive after a while, but there are some interesting bits in it. For instance, there's a description of the so-called raven banner. This was a banner that the women of Ragnar's family supposedly wove in one single night, and it depicted a raven, hence the name. It was a magic banner, and if the raven depicted on the banner spread its wings on the morning of battle, that meant that the Ragnarsons would be victorious. If, on the other hand, the raven kept its wings down, defeat awaited them. This legendary banner, or at least a version of it, is also depicted on the Bayeux tapestry, uh, relating the story of uh, the Norman conquest of Britain. Crocomol is also the source of the infamous misconception that Vikings, or at least Ragnar and his buddies, used to drink beer out of the skulls of their enemies. This is actually based on a 17th century mistranslation by a Danish translator, who, for reasons too complicated to go into here, confused drinking horns and the skulls of our enemies. Unfortunately, his translation was a big hit, so the image of Vikings drinking beer out of the skulls of their dead enemies stuck. Scholars have been trying to point out the translation error at least since the 19th century, so far with limited success. Anyway, 
If it wasn't Ragnar stuck in the snake pit for 300 years making up the poem, who did write Crocomal? Well, we don't really know. But there's a theory out there that both Ragnar and his death were invented long after the actual real Ragnar had died in order to justify the Viking invasion of the British Isles that we'll talk about next time. In a nutshell, the theory argues that a while after the Scandinavians invaded England and established their rule there, they felt the need to justify their invasion, so they made up the story of Ragnar's death and claimed that his sons had conquered England to avenge their father's death. Ragnar in Crocomal is actually a much more impressive figure than Ragnar in Ragnar's own saga, where he's rather overshadowed by his sons and his wife Oslog. One explanation for this is that Crocomal is newer than the saga and Ragnar's legend had time to grow in the meanwhile. So, hearing all of Ragnar's chatter in the snake pit, Ella realized his mistake. In an attempt to avoid the inevitable retribution from the Ragnarsons, Ella sends them a messenger to let them know what had happened, and that it was a mistake, and that he's ever so sorry about it, and could they please just forgive him and take his money and let bygones be bygones. Eventually, the king's messenger finds the hall where the Ragnarsons are hanging out. He walks in and finds Ivar the Boneless sitting at the high seat. Björn's working on a spear shaft, and Vitserk and Sigurd, Snake in the Eye, are playing a board game. When the messenger relates the message from King Ella, Björn's grip on the spear tightens until the shaft splinters in his hand. Vitserk gripped a game piece so hard that blood spring forth under, forth under his fingernails, and Sigurd, who was cutting his nails, don't notice that he cuts his finger to the bone. Vitserk wants to kill the messenger straight away, but Ivar asks to hear every last detail surrounding the death of their father. And as the messenger speaks, Ivar's face turns red, then black, then pale. But he manages to keep his rage in check. Ivar the Boneless then says that he'll go to King Ella to demand financial compensation for the death of their father. His brothers find that rather anticlimactic, but they agree. Ivar goes to Northumbria, and his only demand of King Ella is as much land as he can cover with an ox hide. King Ella can't believe his luck, and agrees at once. But then Ivar proceeds to slice the hide into thin, thin stripes, and with it he encloses an enormous tract of land. This then becomes his foothold in England, and he is intent on using it to undermine King Ella's kingdom. At first, he lures all of Ella's men to abandon the king and come join him instead. Then, he sends words to his brothers to gather an army and attack Northumbria. When they do, he, rather disingenuously, declares his neutrality in the fight between Ella and his brothers. But since he's already convinced all of the king's best men to join him, King Ella has to stand alone against the invading Scandinavian army. Predictably enough, Ella loses the battle is captured by Ivar, and uh, he orders him killed by carving a so-called blood eagle on his back. After killing King Ella, Ivar declares himself king of England and rules it with an iron fist, at least according to the highly unreliable Scandinavian sources. The other brothers continue to raid in England until eventually Vitserk is captured and asks to be put to death by being burned on a pyre built by the skulls of dead soldiers. Peak Viking. Sigurd goes home to Scandinavia to settle down and live a quiet family life. According to the legend, his daughter Ragnhild 
was the mother of Harald Fairhair, the first king of a unified Norwegian kingdom. We'll talk more about him and his hair in a future episode. As Ragnar Lothbrok's posthumous and almost completely fabricated fame grew, more and more kings, chieftains and Icelanders in the Viking and Middle Ages claimed descent from him, making him an important figure whether he'd actually existed or not. For instance, Sven Forkbeard of Denmark referred to Ragnar as an ancestor of his to bolster his own reputation during his invasion of England that we'll talk more about in a future episode. And the kings of Norway also claimed that he was their ancestor. Krokomol may not have anything, or at least very little, to do with the actual Viking named Ragnar Sigurdsson, who led a raid on Paris in 845, but this and other texts about him, or the legend they spun, kept not only the myth of Ragnar Lothbrok alive, it preserved and glorified the Vikings and supplied medieval Scandinavians who suffered from quite an inferiority complex compared to the more prosperous and populous parts of the European continent with at least some cultural capital and prestige. Next time, we'll leave the realm of legend and mythical Viking kings and return to firmer ground from a historical perspective. We'll talk about the large-scale invasion of England carried out by Vikings in the mid-860s that was later justified as a retaliation for the killing of Ragnar Lothbrok. I refer, of course, to the Great Heathen Army. I hope you'll join me then.